Chapter 4. Shovel It. Commences with a quote by John Bunyan. A man there was, and they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. The prosperity gospel, also known as the health and wealth gospel, preaches that God wants his people to prosper in many ways, including, or maybe especially, financially. God wants you to be rich, is the often not-so-hidden mantra. If you will just donate generously to God's work, he will in turn send you so many blessings that you won't know what to do with them. Even though some prosperity gospel appeals sound like cheesy 15th century advertisements for the sale of indulgences, they still attract genuine followers. Subtitles like, Send $200 right now and you'll receive the answer to the prayer on your lips can still be read across the bottom of the screen on some television channels today. The Prosperity Gospel's well-dressed proponents cite a myriad of beautiful Bible texts, not the least of which is Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. They also reference 3 John verse 2, where the Apostle greets his friend Gaius with, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. And let's not miss Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I agree in principle with many aspects of the prosperity gospel teaching, but there are just as many, dare I say even more, biblical directives that call us to a life of sacrifice, servanthood, and maybe even almost self-inflicted poverty. There are also passages that clearly point out that wealth is certainly not always a sign of God's blessings, even within his chosen people. In Isaiah 2 verses 6 to 9 we read, You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Obviously, wealth is not just reserved for the obedient and faithful. I also wonder as to the actual motives of some of the prosperity gospel's preachers. They seem to be more focused on getting listeners to sacrifice and donate generously to their ministries, which often look more like crucifix-carrying corporations, than truly ministering to the real needs of their flocks. Five-star ministries and six- or seven-figure incomes, I know who's not sacrificing. This method of preaching and fundraising is not new. Both Peter and Paul described it precisely almost 2,000 years ago. In 2 Corinthians 2.17 we read, You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. And in 1 Timothy 6.5, These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. And 2 Peter 2.3, In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. Serious words. It's no surprise that the prosperity gospel was full speed ahead during the televangelism campaigns of the 1980s, nor that it has gained significant momentum in the post-global financial crisis world. Less well-known, 
is the fact that it's also making itself prosperous from the gospel in developing nations where countless millions are struggling to rise above poverty. I remember passing a massive billboard outside a church in New Delhi, India, on which was written, God will not allow his children to go hungry. That's probably very effective evangelism in a city where so many eke out an existence from the dumps and restaurant bins. If becoming a Christian will guarantee food for my family, then sign me up. It would be nice to be able to write off the whole prosperity gospel gimmick as a false belief system, but it's just not that simple. God's very real prosperity promises cannot just be ignored because some Christ traffickers have perverted them. The prosperity gospel's centuries-old popularity is due in equal measure to the various ministries that creatively peddle it to raise money and, wait for it, to the genuine testimonials of people like myself who have found God's prosperity promises to be true. Be warned, though. This book is not a how-to guide for Christians who want to get rich, nor did I ever consider calling it The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Tithe Payers. It is simply an attempt to share my journey and what I've learned and am still learning as I've tried to keep God's flood of blessings from becoming curses in my life. Did I just say curses? That prosperity can be a curse? That God's blessings can be curses? Is that blasphemy? Bear with me as I share my battle and how I've seen just how easily God's blessings can become curses. Some Bible scholars have described Malachi 3 verse 10 as a contract between God and man. That's quite a statement when you think about it. Let's read it again. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. A contract is a written agreement between two parties promising to carry out certain actions, enforceable by law. In this instance, the two parties are God and man. To be more precise, the man part is you and me, and every other human being with the ability to make rational decisions. What about the law? I'm accustomed to reading contracts that are governed by and to be construed in accordance with the law of Queensland, Australia. But this one is far broader in its scope and territory. It seems to be more of a law of God or a law of the universe. How about the law of the God of the universe? I don't know about you, but if I'm about to sign a significant contract, I spend hours, sometimes weeks and months, going through it in detail and I pay good money to experts in the law for their advice too. Fortunately, in the essence of time and simplified language, this entire contract only has 51 words, and can be summarised in even less. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and I will pour out so much blessing that you won't be able to store it all. So simple, yet so complicated. So unbelievable. Or is it? For fear of being criticised... I can tell you that I have absolutely proven God's faithfulness to his contract in Malachi 3.10, without even the slightest shadow of a doubt. Time and time again, God has abundantly blessed my family as we have endeavoured to faithfully pay our tithe and offerings, and pass on many of his blessings to others. 
During our years in business, it seemed that no matter how much money we gave away to tithes, offerings, charities, ministries and humanitarian projects, God always found ways of pouring even more back into our bank accounts. Yes, that's right. Cash out equals more cash in. So much more cash, in fact, that we have often struggled to find places to, as Malachi says, store it. And that's just the monetary blessings, not to mention the myriad of other blessings with our family, peace, safety, opportunities, and the list goes on. As we saw each miracle occur, we often reminded each other of the similar experiences of respected US earth-moving equipment manufacturer and Christian philanthropist Robert Latono, who was told the following by one of his customers, I try to shovel out more for God than he can for me, but he always wins. He's got a bigger shovel. The 17th century English preacher and author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, declared it poetically, A man there was, and they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. In the 1990s, I was so amazed by the concrete evidence of God's fulfilling his promises to me that I even started to write a book on it. It was called Solomon Says, Financial Principles from History's Richest Man. It was to be a step-by-step guide for people who wanted to use the wisdom of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes to build substantial wealth. By the way, you won't find the book in any library or bookstore because I didn't finish it, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. So, in light of my years of almost scientifically proving and measuring the evidence of God's keeping his Malachi 3 contract with me, often in real dollars and cents, you could easily conclude that I am a devoted convert to and proponent of the prosperity gospel. But not so fast. <laughs> 